The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So have you heard that 2020 has been a chaotic year? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I, I was walking this week, and you see all those yard signs that have the name of a candidate, and I saw one that just said, Meteor 2020, just ended already. <laughs> that, was, that was a good one. Well, it has been a crazy, chaotic, and combative year. So how does a Christian have a Christ-centered view in a crazy and chaotic and combative year? Psalm 33 gives us some help on that. But the short answer is one of the counterintuitive pieces of counsel that God has always given his people when things are chaotic. God tells us when things are chaotic, give thanks. Colossians 3 verse 15 says this, let the peace of God rule your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. That's our primary purpose this month. November is the month, of course, of the holiday, Thanksgiving. But we will be walking through psalms of gratitude throughout the month. Psalms to remind us that God is still worthy of our thanks. This morning's sermon title is Thankful Are the People Whose God is the Lord. So look with me in God's Word in the 33rd Psalm as we see reminders for reasons for thankfulness. Verse 1, shout for joy. In the Lord, O ye righteous, praise befits the upright. The Hebrew word translated shout for joy normally does mean shout. It can also mean sing, and so some translations translate it that way. In this context, probably both are, are intended. So sing with loud fervor and praise. Do so, notice, together. All these words are actually plural. So all the yous are plural. The word righteous even in Hebrew has a plural ending. The point then is we need to hear each other praise the Lord. Have you noticed that if you are on your own, away from people praising the Lord, it's easy to quit praising the Lord. <laughs> this is why the psalm actually tells us sing together in gratitude for the Lord. We need to hear each other sing praise to God. God is our God. And he's our God forever. And that should wake within us unceasing and overflowing joy. Charles Spurgeon warns us, To rejoice in temporal comforts is dangerous. To rejoice in self is foolish. To rejoice in sin is fatal. But to rejoice in God together is heavenly. This verse tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Notice verse 2. Not only should we sing together for the Lord, but notice verse 2. We should give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp. But wait, when the world's chaotic, why should I stop and give thanks? And here is a good time to point out that sometimes the Psalms are more connected than we realize. Most Psalms have a heading. Several do not. And a couple of those psalms were originally combined. There are at least 10 ancient Hebrew manuscripts that we still have. That Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 are just one. They're one combined psalm. 
Let me show you why that matters. Look at the end of Psalm 32 in your Bible. Verse 11 of Psalm 32 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Does that sound familiar? It's almost exactly the same as Psalm 33, verse 1 and 2. So wait, what is it that they're singing about? Go back to the beginning of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity. So why does Psalm 33, verse 2, say, give thanks to the Lord with the harp? I think Charles Spurgeon says it perfectly. Because a harp suits a blood-washed hand. You see, have your sins been forgiven? Then you always have reason to thank the Lord. So in 2020, hold the harp in your blood-washed hand and make melody to the Lord who forgives. Verse 3. So sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The phrase new song causes many commentators and writers to sort of trip. What does new song mean? Does it mean it's a song that's never been sung before? It's newly composed, maybe? No, it, it, it means a fresh awareness of the goodness of God. James Montgomery Boyce wrote it this way. New song simply means every praise song should emerge from a fresh awareness of God's grace. New means that you're singing it because you really do value the person you're singing about. <laughs> you really love him and you appreciate him. The text continues, play skillfully. So sing with a fresh appreciation of God. Play skillfully, giving God our best in song. And sing with loud shouts or sing with fervor, we might say. I want to pause here for a moment because I never want us to confuse culturally the difference between fervor and frivolity. Let's imagine in the upcoming weekend, on Friday night you have a college football game you're going to, and on Saturday you're going to your sister's wedding. If you decide to paint your face for one of those, <laughs> I hope it's not your sister's wedding. The reason, of course, they're both celebratory, but one of them is significant and weighty, and the other is frivolous and really not important. Now, that reminds us of something that commonly is missed. Every once in a while at church, people will try to rally people up and say, hey, you cheered a football game. Well, well yes. But when you approach something weighty, you approach it with, with fervor and reverence. So uh, maybe the best way to say it is this way. The Hebrew word kabad is the word glory, translated glory in English, it actually means weighty. God is weighty and wonderful. So when the psalm says, sing freshly and sing with fervor, the point is sing with weighty joy because the person you're singing about is always worthy of reverence. You see, if he was only frivolous, then if your team wins, you cheer. But if your team loses, you go away angry. But because he's eternally weighty, there is always reason for joy. So thank the Lord together that his mercies are new each morning. 
So sing with freshness in a response to his new mercies and sing with fervor related to the weight of his wonder. But now verses four and five, here's another reason to thank the Lord. Verse four, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. Notice that the Lord's word always does the Lord's work. And you can always count on God's word to do his work. You know how differently we are, right? We say we're going to do something, but we don't always do it. Sometimes it might be forgetfulness. Sometimes it might be our finitude or limitations. Sometimes it might be outright hypocritical lying. But we're not always reliable. God always is. What he says, he does. And there's never a dissonance between them. Spurgeon writes, God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, acts with a hand that never fails. Verse 4 tells us, his word is upright, therefore his work is always done in faithfulness. So in 2020, thank God that what he says, he does. What he promises always will be fulfilled. As a reminder to that, now the psalm is going to tell us how the world came into being through his word. So look in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deep in their storehouses. It's the same Hebrew phrase from Genesis where God caused the oceans to form. So you remember in Genesis 1 verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. What God says happens always. His word always accomplishes his work. Verse 8, because of that, let all the earth fear the Lord. And let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There's really only two ways you can respond to the awesome power of God's word to do his work. You can either have reverent trust or you can have cynical dread. But because God speaks and everything he says comes to existence, we either revere that in awe or we fear that and run. In fact, the The fact that God created by his word is more fully filled in in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, when we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And that word, verse 14 tells us, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the word is actually the means by which God created the world. Jesus created the world and holds it all together. Did you notice here, verse 9 of our text says, he spoke, and notice the last phrase says, it stood firm. The New Testament picks that up in Colossians 1.16, talking about Jesus. For by him all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He spoke And it stood firm. My grandpa in his basement had a record player. And you know how when a record spins, it has that crackling kind of warm sound. And he had a record of Louis Armstrong, 
who also has a very gravelly voice. And so Louis Armstrong would sing, when I see skies of blue and roses red, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. But see, when the Christian sees those things, we know in our heart, what a wonderful God. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. This passage tells us how the Lord spoke and it came to be and we are in awe of him. But hear this especially in a chaotic year. Look now in verses 10 and 11. The Lord's will stands and his decree cannot be thwarted. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Notice how counsel is contrasted. People have counsel, but it becomes nothing. God has counsel, and it stands forever. So listen this morning. No nation, no country, no group of people will ever thwart God's eternal decree. They never have, and they never will. Man's plans blow to and fro like a feather in the wind. But the will of the Lord withstands man's grandest assaults unchanged. No rioter, no looter, no anarchist group, no voting bloc will ever stop God's eternal decree. In fact, Scripture says this to us repeatedly. My favorite is Joseph, my favorite Old Testament character. At the end of all these years where his brothers have sold him into slavery and left him to die, he ends up in God's grace never being left by God's presence. God takes him from the pit to prison to the pinnacle. And here he is, the vice chair, almost like a parliamentary president of the strongest superpower of the day. Now his brothers come to him and they finally repent. And in Genesis 45, Joseph tells them this in verse 5. You sold me here. So what you did is wrong. But actually God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant and to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, ultimately speaking, but God. Years later, their father, Jacob, dies. And Joseph's brothers are concerned. Man, there's no way he really forgave us. Now he's going he's to kill us. And in Genesis 50, Joseph actually weeps that, that they didn't realize that he truly had forgiven them. But then he gives us this wonderful theological truth. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This same truth actually culminates at the cross. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching the sermon at Pentecost, and he says this, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, whom you crucified and killed as lawless men. So what you did is wrong, and yet it was God's eternal decree. So don't be concerned when wicked things happen and think, how could God let that happen? Has not God always ordained evil for good? These are not new experiences. In fact, our very salvation hinges on God ordaining the wicked acts of humans to save our souls. That doesn't mean, by the way, that he won't call into account wickedness. What is done wickedly will fully be called into account unless mercy is received through repentance and faith in Christ. But God always has ordained all things for his purposes. This week, Kevin DeYoung wrote a blog post called What Will Still Be True When the Election Is Over. He wrote it on November 3rd. 
He wrote, we may know by early morning who will be president, or we may not know until the end of the year. But whether we have hours or days or weeks left, the 2020 election at some point will come to an end. And when it is over, after countless tweets, posts, articles, and punditry, and after being exposed to a steady stream of advertising, befuddlement, and outrage, and after all the ballots have been counted or not, and you feel relieved, grateful, or despondent, don't forget what will still be true. God will still be on the throne. He'll be working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. God will be our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, Psalm 46, verse 1. God's dominion will be an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will endure from generation to generation. Come tomorrow, or the next day, or the next year, all the promises of God are still yes and amen in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Lord will know those who are His. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you still will be saved. We do not have to wonder about God's priorities. Each day, He will exalt His name and His word. He will still oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. The poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the peacemakers, and the persecuted will still be blessed. And the wicked will still reap what they sow. And God will not be mocked. DeYoung concludes, Republicans and Democrats will come and go. But Christ's reign is secure. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. Remember tomorrow and next month and next year, who still is king? (laughs) And therefore, give thanks. Look in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Though the nations rage, God is still in control. In fact, we'll come back to verse 12, but look at verses 13 through 15. God sees observingly everything that everyone is doing. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out. And on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. Thank the Lord then. That there is nothing happening that the Lord is not aware of. There is nothing happening that somehow is hidden from his judging eye. But if we return to verse 12, blessed is the nation, we read it as Americans and think, well, what does this mean for America or for modern countries? What would it mean for Colombia or Kenya or Mexico or Canada? James Montgomery Boyce died in the year 2000, but before his death, He explained in a commentary on Psalm 33 that surely verse 12 refers to Old Testament Israel. But there are promises in Scripture that a nation is blessed when it has righteousness in it. So is there anything we can learn from this verse for a country? He writes, how shall we think of our own nation? America has certainly had strong Christian roots. God, truth, the Bible, and morality was once revered, even if not consistently practiced. The Puritans were an unusually strong force in our nation's founding, and they looked upon America as a new Israel. They regarded the venture to come in here as an errand into the wilderness, like the Jews' desert journey before the Promised Land. Isn't it right to say America was blessed in its early history because, in large measure, its God was the Lord, he writes? I think that is obvious, Boyce says. But now, and he wrote this over 20 years ago, 
Now we may have a remnant of believing people, and have no doubt we've been spared many tragedies because of them, but now our country is no longer Christian. It is militantly secular. God is no longer sought, nor is his word honored. And Boyce wrote, I fear to think what is coming for the United States of America, whose God is no longer the Lord. And he wrote that 20 years ago. So how should we think then? If we as a nation may or may not have much hope, what hope is there? Thankfully, this phrase, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, is picked up in the New Testament. In 2 Peter, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this. You, Christian church, are a chosen race. You, New Testament believer, are a royal priesthood. You, Christian church, are a holy nation. A people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Politics matters. Policies matter. Presidents matter. But infinitely and eternally more important than that is a citizenship that cannot be taken and a nationhood that cannot fall. A nationhood built, First Peter says, on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. You see, the foundation for our nationality is a heavenly one. It is one bequeathed from the divine maker. It is one that is never in jeopardy, no matter what happens in any recent poll. So let's thank the Lord in 2020 that the chief cornerstone upon which our faith is built is Jesus Christ. Many may stumble on it, but there is not salvation in any other. In fact, that is where our psalm now turns. In verses 16 and following, we'll read that those who hope in themselves will be put to shame because salvation only comes from the Lord. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. The things that we tend to think of as great are not as great as we think. The king thinks, I have a great army, so I'll have victory and security. The warrior thinks, I have great strength, so I'll have victory and security. The rider to the battle thinks, I have a war horse with great might, so I'll have victory and security. Today we might think, I have wealth and possessions, so I have victory and security. I've done good things, so I have victory and security. I have tremendous abilities, so I have victory and security. But all of those things are inherently unstable and unreliable. I've been reading Second Chronicles at home to my daughter before bed, and I love reading the stories of the kings in the Bible. Do you know the story of wicked Ahab? Remember at the end of his life, He knows God's judgment is coming to him, so he has a disguise that he dons, thinking, I have victory and security because of my ingenuity. No one will recognize me. And I love the way the Bible puts it. There was an archer who drew his bow at random, the text says. But there are no random arrows when God is sovereign, are there? And so the arrow lands exactly where it's intended, and Ahab, for all of his plans and all of his ingenuity, falls dead. You see, anything that we think we can put hope in in our own strength will fail us. But look now in verse 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, 
on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The watchful eye of the Lord is frightening for those who run from him, but for those who hope in him, it is a wonderful encouragement. We fear him by revering him or turning to him in trust. We hope in him by depending on him in humility. And what we hope most in is his his steadfast love, his loyal love to the undeserving, his covenant to be faithful to us even when we are faithless. Notice the two things he promises in verse 19, to deliver our soul from death. We'll look at that one in a second, eternal death. But now even short of that, God does often keep alive his people in famine. In other words, God often cares for us as his people in the everyday things of life. Have you been spared of sickness perhaps this year? Thank God for it. Not everyone has. Have you been kept from serious accidents? Praise God for that. Not everyone has. Have you been delivered from people who would harm you at work or at home or on the streets? Then thank God. He delivers his people in famine. But even more so, notice, he delivers our soul from death. Even Christians may face famine, but no Christian faces eternal death. This is something that God has taken on himself. You see, when we come to God with an honest assessment of who we are and an accurate assessment of who he is, we understand our only hope is the Lord. God is the creator and sustainer. He's omnicompetent, lacking nothing. We are finite and fallen, lacking the glory of our creator. So let me pause for a minute to press these two words. We must both fear the Lord and hope in the Lord. To hope in the Lord is to come humbly, desperate to the Lord. Did you know when Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes into the Father but by me, he didn't mean that he's just the best way. He means he's the only way. To come to God humbly means you recognize you have zero hope outside of the Lord. You cannot put any strength in your chariots or your army or anything you have. You come to him only with empty hands asking him alone to carry you. In fact, if you think we're good at controlling things, have you seen the recent news? (laughs) We're not good at controlling anything. Our only hope is the Lord. But the second phrase is fear the Lord. This means to have an appropriate reverence to who God is in comparison to who we are. So here's something I'm very burdened about. Often in America, when we talk about people's need for Jesus, we present Jesus as a helpful option, maybe an assistant, maybe someone you put in the back seat of your car or in the trunk, and then in case of emergency, if you get pulled over, he can help you out. Let me remind you for a second who Jesus is. The distance between the earth and the sun is 91 million miles The distance between the Earth and the next closest star is 4.3 light years. To help you visualize this, imagine that this sheet of paper is worth 91 million miles. In order to visually understand the distance between here and the next star, I'd have to count one sheet of paper on top of each other, 91 million miles, 91 million miles, 91 million miles, until I had 70 feet high of sheets of paper. 
Now, the Milky Way galaxy is much wider than the distance between the Earth and the closest star. So let's take that same measurement. Let's pretend this piece of paper is 91 million miles. Do you know how many sheets of paper I'd have to stack until I had the Milky Way galaxy? 310 miles of single sheets of paper from here to the sky. And the Bible just said that he spoke and it came into being, and he spoke and it stood firm. And you're going to put him in the back seat? He's your assistant? He's here to help you out if you get stuck? Listen, God is not a hobby that you tack on. God is not a triviality you try for a few months. God is not an assistant that you break in case of emergency. God is God. He spoke and the universe came into being. We do not approach him asking for a leg up. We approach him saying, God, I need you. And I have no hope apart from you. Sadly, in America, we, we market Jesus as if he's a helpful thing you could try, as if it's an infomercial. No, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Ancient of days, the Alpha and Omega, who was and is and is to come. We come to him in humble fear and faith, saying, Lord, let your will be done. And so now notice verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits. Don't miss that word, brothers and sisters. Waits. Don't get burned up about the present. Wait. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So yes, 2020 has been a chaotic year, but it'll come and it'll go and we will wait in the Lord. Our hope who can never fail. Russ Moore, the chair of the ERLC, wrote this week about the divisions in our country and how real they are. I don't know country music. My wife tried to put it on, it, it never took. So he shares a country music song. I don't have any idea who he's talking about, but he writes, in the 1980s, the country music troubadours, George Jones and Tammy Wynette, sang a haunting song about a couple in a divided and loveless marriage, something they knew about as themselves, ex-spouses to one another. I've got my story, Wynette sang, and I've got mine too, Jones responded. How sad we now live in a two-story house, they sang together. Russell Moore writes, we now live in a two-story nation. The plot of history is not resolved in November or December of 2020. In fact, the plot line of history will not be resolved in the remainder of our lives. The plot line is resolved beyond what we think of as time itself. Even when we don't know who will sit behind the resolute desk in January, Moore writes, we know who stands in heaven and who will one day join heaven and earth together under his rule, and it will not be a close call. So look in verse 20, wait in the Lord. His kingdom comes, and our king will return, and his kingdom will never end. So we may have a two-story nation, but listen, the church has one foundation, Jesus Christ, her Lord. So this year, 
be counterculturally thankful. And point that your hope is not shattered by whatever happens in the present. Your hope is held fast by the Ancient of Days. Let's pray together this morning. God, when your people give you thanks, it brings you great glory. Lord, let Emmanuel Baptist Church bring you great glory. To our neighbors, to our coworkers, to people we are with out and about on the street, let none of them see us despairing as if we are hopeless. Because our hope is in the Lord who spoke everything into existence and holds it together with his pinky finger, as it were. Give us a bigger view of you, Lord, a bigger view of you. So often you are marketed as a slight assistant or as a trial that you might take home and discard if it doesn't work for you after 60 days. How sinful we are, Lord, to not recognize that you are God. This world and everything about it will vanish, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Lord, remind us who you are. And Lord, help some of us who are maybe here today who have never really put our heart's hope in you to do so this morning. To fear the Lord and to put our steadfast hope in him unto salvation. Let no one trip over the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. But Lord, may we have our life built on him. May we recognize that he is the one foundation. And may we counterculturally point people with sweet joy to the one person who can always be relied upon, who is always as good as his word, to you. And Lord, I pray this morning we would leave encouraged by remembering who you are. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.